1. This is the pre-roll only ad. 3. This is the pre and mid-roll ad. If you're like me and there's a foreign language that you regret not learning in school, it's never too late to start with Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you can finally cross learning a new language off your list. I started using Babbel two months ago to learn Spanish. I chose Spanish because it's spoken in 21 countries and your girl loves to travel. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson, so you can start having a real-life conversation in a new language in as little as three weeks. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash rain. That's babbel.com slash rain for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life. Welcome everyone to FF Plus, your outlet for weekly reviews that are simple, short, and spoiler-free. I'm your host, Aaron White, and I have three new films to discuss with you today. If you're enjoying the show, why don't you give me a follow on social media? You can chat with me on Twitter at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, or you can find me on Letterboxd at that same username. You can find me in the Facebook discussion group for Feelin' Film. I am all over the place, and I always love to talk movies. Also, if you're enjoying the show, we'd love for you to support us with a five-star rating on your podcast app of choice. If you want to leave a few kind words on Apple's podcast review platform as well, that would be amazing. Well, the first film for today is Inu O from G-Kids. It stars the voices of Abu-chan and Mirai Moriyama. It is directed by Masaki Yuasa and is written by Akiko Nogi. What's it about? Born to an esteemed family, Inuo is inflicted with an ancient curse that has left him on the margins of society. When he meets the blind musician Tamona, a young Baiwa priest haunted by his past, Inuo discovers a captivating ability to dance. The pair quickly become business partners and inseparable friends as crowds flock to their electric larger-than-life concerts. But when those in power threaten to break up the band, Inuo and Tamona must dance and sing to uncover the truth behind their creative gifts. Now, my personal history with Masaki Yuasa films is a bit mixed. He has several acclaimed films, and a couple of them I have not seen, or one of them, one of his series specifically, Devilman Crybaby, I have not seen yet, want to eventually. He's very well known for making films that are visually a little bit abstract, I guess you could say. He doesn't have the most traditional visual palette. It's very distinctive art style, and sometimes that really works for people, specifically in films that have somewhat of a fantastical element to them, which most of his do. My favorite film by him is actually probably his most grounded, and that is the last movie he made called Ride Your Wave. 
that is basically like a rom-com. And I absolutely fell head over heels for that one because it was more straightforward story and heavy in the relationship building. That is one of the areas that I did not feel was as strong here in Inuo. So my favorite things about Inuo are probably just, in general, the theme of this story. It explores this idea of marginalized people, be it Inuo, who is inflicted with this curse that I mentioned that essentially gives him incredibly strange physical traits. One is an go-go gadget type long extended arm that is just completely unnatural. Like it is, I mean, we're talking 20, 30 feet long arm and every other limb is normal sized. His eyes are sort of kind of offset, but almost like in a vertical pattern on his face. So much so that he just walks around covering his body with masks and shoes and all kinds of clothing to try and hide his appearance because of the way that society treats him. And then we have Timona, who he teams up with, who is blind. So is also sort of on the outskirts of the culture at the time. And so the movie is kind of putting them together to see what it's like in this feudal Japanese setting for these two characters who are not treated normally and who end up finding the ability to use their artistic talents to almost sort of revolt against the elders and the leaders of the day. Essentially, they do this via these rock concerts that I mentioned, and it is absolutely entertaining as heck once that happens. The music kicks ass. The visuals look amazing. The fantastical elements to the way that the show production is created is really cool. And it's really trippy. And it kind of makes me think sometimes when you're watching the crowd of people like falling in love with these performances and starting to almost like worship and idolize musical artists, it's kind of like a religious experience. And the story that they're telling with their music is history. So they are putting forth into the world this idea of these traditional tales that the current leaders in charge, the priests, would not want out there. So there's this conflict there between how they are using this showmanship and this talent to entertain to get across real important information, and yet the man who is being displaced by their performances, it almost becomes like a cautionary tale because the government wants to censor how history is being rewritten and how it is being passed down for future generations. So those aspects of this movie, I think, are really intriguing and really interesting. Just the ideas of the characters in general coming together and then the way that they kind of rebel against the the modern society by trying to ensure that this information moves on throughout time. 
and what they come up against while doing that. As I mentioned, that gorgeous animated style, at times it does get sort of psychedelic, which is not my favorite thing. It can be very chaotic and whimsical, and honestly, Yuasa just can't help himself, and sometimes it's just flat out weird, and that kind of stuff doesn't really land for me. I like it more grounded and somewhat on the believable scale. There's not a ton of that, though. Definitely not enough that it ruined the film for me or kind of took me out of it uh, at any time. It's just such an expressive and distinct visual flair that he has that I think makes this worth watching simply because you are so compelled to just you're seeing something that is not common to animation i think of how the last animated film that i reviewed was luck that skydance pictures film on apple tv plus from john lassiter and and this is kind of unfair in a way because i will say the films are definitely targeted at different audiences and so they sort of kind of do what they need to do to hit those audiences but a movie like luck is completely uninspired the animation is simple boring almost lazy feeling the storytelling there's no depth to it it really does truly feel like it's just trying to get a toddler's attention so that they'll sit in front of the screen for 90 minutes and go "Ooh, cute cat Ooh, cute dragon this is not something for kids right this is an adult story that has these important ideas behind it to dig into and so you have this movie that is completely it's a visionary working it's risk-taking it's ambitious and it is incredibly stylistic and it's hard for me to like look at these two movies back to back and think wow you know we watch these big studios pump out so many of these films that are just almost like they were made by an algorithm and so for that reason alone, I watched something like this from Yuasa, and I'm just kind of blown away because of how interesting it is. Much like last year's Bell, honestly, kind of another musical type of storytelling that just looks and sounds amazing. And while I don't feel either one is perfect in the way that it tells its story, it's so much more watchable than just another thing that looks the same as everything else. The other problem with this one specifically for me was that it took a long time to get going. So the first third or so of the runtime was a lot of historical setup, which I guess is actually necessary on some level. We needed this information, but it takes 30 minutes or so before we get our main character of Inuo even introduced to the story. Once he is, things really pick up and I am able to then become engaged with the narrative and that's when the music starts and it just kind of takes you over and you go on this ride. But it does take a little bit to finally kick in. So Inuo will be in theaters on August the 12th. I believe there will be showings both in Japanese and then an English dub. I watched the film in Japanese. So hopefully there are those options for folks and you can make your choice. Usually these films that are put out by G kids have really good dubs. So I wouldn't expect anything less from them. So am I feeling it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I definitely give this a hearty recommendation. I think it will look amazing on a big screen. Personally, I would love to get a chance to 
go see it that way with the English dub. See how the rock songs play in my native language versus just hearing the music and then reading the songs, uh, the lyrics of the songs. So I would like to see how that goes differently for me. But I definitely highly recommend this one for any big fans of animation in general uh, and fans of just films that are a little bit out there and try something different. So, yeah, I think that you can't go wrong with Inuo. Next up is Untold, The Girlfriend Who Didn't Exist from Netflix, directed by Ryan Duffy and Tony Vinuku. What's it about? Born into a Hawaiian paradise, all-American football standout Mante Teo leads a simple life summed up in just three words, faith, family, and football. College football's golden boy could do no wrong, but when tragedy strikes, the increased scrutiny of his online relationship causes a media maelstorm that threatens his future and legacy. Now, this is the first of a new four-pack of documentaries, sports documentaries, in this Untold series from Netflix. You can think of it kind of like an ESPN 30 for 30. I was really impressed with the first season of this, and I'm really pumped that they are going to continue putting out new ones. And again, this is the premiere episode. It will actually, it comes in two parts. So part one is leading up to and showing everything that goes down with this kind of made up girlfriend and how it impacts how Manti Teo gets wrapped up into this relationship. And then after that, the second part deals with sort of the aftermath of how that affects him and the fallout from the whole scenario. This is just an unreal story. It's one of those stranger than fiction type situations. I remember distinctly following college football strongly at the time when this happened. Manti Teo was a superstar he was never expected to go to Notre Dame. Everyone thought he would be at like USC or a California school, as many Polynesian football players from uh, his area would do. But he ended up at Notre Dame. He had a very strong faith, and that's where he prayed and felt that he should go. And he wasn't Catholic either, by the way. He's uh, Mormon. And so he was putting himself in a very unique position to be in a school with different religious values than his own. But he believes that's where God wanted him to be. So he goes to Notre Dame. He largely succeeds in bringing a lot of attention back to them and all the way to the points of, you know, being a Heisman Trophy runner-up, being in a national championship game, all these things. And unfortunately, his life comes crashing down because of this reveal that his girlfriend that he had said existed was found to not. What it basically amounts to is it's a catfish scenario. Before catfishing was a big thing, before people really understood fully what that meant, there was a man at the time named Renai Tuyasasopo, and I'm going to refer to him as a man, he, him, pronouns. Uh, Renai is now, goes by the name Naya and is a transgender woman, but per the documentary notes and per the way that it's presented, it is very much understood that Mante was dealing with Renaya when he was representing himself as a man. And so it's important to kind of understand that context. So Renaya just was a guy who didn't feel comfortable in his own skin. And he wanted to feel like what it was like to be a woman and have that sort of attention. He was a worship leader at his church. So he was kind of under 
the radar, under, you know, in the closet, so to speak. Didn't really know who he was or what he wanted to be. He just wanted to do this as an experiment. Essentially, he creates this character on Facebook. <laughs> and, you know, today it's not really that surprising. Like people have done this now for ages, but back in the early 2010s, when it was new, it was a lot easier to kind of pull the wool over someone's eyes. He creates this profile. It has pictures of a real person that they knew in high school. He gives it a fake name, gives it all of these qualities and personality traits that eventually lead to Mante Teo being connected to this profile. And just by chance, they start talking. This was not a targeted campaign by Renaya. And it just kind of progresses from there. And the documentary tells this story via heavy interviews from both Renaya and from Mante Teo. And I think that's where the strength of this lies is because we get both sides and they almost perfectly line up with each other. Like this is not a situation of did it go down like X or Y? It's just two different perspectives of the same relationship, but the details are pretty indisputable. Honestly, these are two people that have not talked since this all went down a decade ago. And yet they're both part of this documentary. And I found it to be just enthralling. I, I was watching how this all happened. You know, back when it took place, I was right there with the rest of social media and with my friends making fun of Mante Teo. I was watching this on the news when ESPN broke the story saying, oh, you know, Mante Teo, who said that his grandmother and his girlfriend died in the same day, it was discovered this girlfriend didn't exist. Oh, he must be gay. He must be hiding something. Oh, he must have made this up for attention so that he could get more Heisman votes. Like the way in which we as a society are quick to judge, quick to assume, and quick to let the media direct our way of thinking about something when it comes to athletes and celebrities. That is one of the more interesting parts of this documentary because it's not just about what happened and the relationship. It's about the fact that Deadspin, a small sports blog at the time with eight employees, asked the question, why is nobody fact-checking this? Why is ESPN and why are all of these major networks just running with this story? Well, we know why, because they wanted the clicks, even going back that far, right? They wanted the attention. They didn't do any homework. And so then we get the story of Deadspin and how it's woven into this, how they tracked down the fact that this is not a real person, right? And it is someone who had created this fake online persona, Kept it going for three years, used a voice change, not, not used a device, but literally changed their voice and then created all of this drama around how all these reasons why they couldn't meet Mante in person leading up to the point where the only thing they could do is, quote, kill off the character in order to make it stop. And the timing was terrible. And it's just a fascinating documentary. I absolutely loved it. I was riveted the whole time. And I really like getting to see and learn more about these situations that I myself was guilty of jumping to conclusions about, you know? The thing that I took away from this more than anything is that both of these people, Renaya, now Naya, and Manti Teo, have regrets. And they both acknowledge how real and meaningful the relationship was to them and what it meant at the time, despite the fact that it was a complete fabrication. It's a pretty emotional story, and I gained empathy for both of them on some level. I, I don't, you know, think I for I don't 
and I don't have the right to forgive anyone, but I don't take away the responsibility that Renai should feel for what they did and what it caused Mante because this person lost a complete life they may have had differently because of this from their public persona to how it affected them on the football field and beyond. And just realizing that it's not always black and white and there are reasons to understand why this happened. And like I said, feel empathy for each person in their own way. And again, empathy doesn't mean you agree with what they do, right? It just means you understand. And I just thought this was so well put together and such a great start to this next season. I'm untold that it has me very, very excited about the following three films that we have coming. And I'll be covering all of those on subsequent episodes of FF Plus as well. This will be streaming on Netflix starting on August 16th. And if you can't already tell, I absolutely heartily recommend it. I recommend the whole series. I recommend the last year's series as well. And for a fun tie-in, I actually covered one of the films in this series about a tennis player on a podcast called Cinematic Underdog. So you can check out my episode on Cinematic Underdogs covering the film Untold Breaking Point, which was the story of American tennis player Marty Fish. And speaking of Cinematic Underdogs podcast, for a special treat, I have a guest for this last review. Joining me to discuss the documentary Fire of Love from National Geographic Documentary Films and Neon is my friend and the host of Cinematic Underdogs podcast, Paul Keelan. Thanks for coming on the show, man. Thanks for having me. I'm always excited to be on Filling Film, and I couldn't be any more excited to be discussing this film with you today. I'm very, very, very excited. Well, good. I am excited to have you with me because I don't do this almost ever, but I read your review of this film on Letterboxd, which, by the way, is incredible and long and thorough and deserves to be published somewhere. So... We need to work on that because it, it needs to get more exposure than just Letterbox. Letterbox is great, but my goodness, man, it's so good. We'll dig into that too later on about you know where you do do some writing and your podcasting, of course. But yeah, let's let's get into it. So Fire of Love, this the only star for this movie really is the narration by Miranda July. That is the key piece here outside of just archival footage. This is directed by Sarah Dosa, and it is written by Sarah Dosa, Shane Boris, Aaron Casper, and Jocelyn Chaput. What's it about? The film follows the lives and careers of daring French volcanologists Katia and Maurice Kraft, who ultimately die in a 1991 volcanic explosion via archival footage. So, Paul, this movie was a hit coming out of Sundance. It's been playing in theaters for, I don't know, about a month now, maybe a little, a little bit less than that or so. Practically no one I know outside of film critics, and even outside of film critics who specifically cover film festivals, knows what this is. So I'm curious, and I wanted to start here, how did you end up sitting in a theater watching this movie? Well, that's a great question and a perfect place to start. I mean, this has all the elements that are just so ripe for me. This film is like my movie love language. <laughs> There's a lot of talk about like how Volcanoes is the love language of Maurice and Katia Croft, you know? Oh, yeah. Uh, this is this is my space. So I saw a few previews in the months leading up to it, which I was surprised. Like there was actually a few previews in the theaters that I would go to. Yet when it came out the opening weekend, it was literally in one 
theater one like screen maybe three times a day and when we saw it there was a father and his two like teenage sons in the theater and that was it like a sunday at 4 p.m so definitely didn't hit the radar um which is expected in ways but a disappointment because this for me is up there in my top three movie experiences of the year easily I mean, this vies for my top movie experience of the year, especially in theaters on the big screen, um, mm-hmm. immediately took me over and transported me into it. But yeah, to, to answer your question specifically, it, this just had all the elements. My favorite probably film of all time, I hate this question, is almost anyone who loves movies as much as we both do. Um, yeah, it's tough. I would guess maybe you would say, what would yours be, La La Land? Uh, no, La La Land's, I think... I think number seven last time I did a ranking, but it's always going to be the Lord of the Rings trilogy as a whole. Mm. It's a, it will never be dethroned, but I agree. I hate the question because it, you ask me on any given day, my mood, I could list anything. You know, I've got probably a list of 10, maybe 10 to 15 that I would say is my absolute top tier. But yeah, what were you going to say was yours? Yeah, but you said perfectly, right? It's almost depending on your mood. And if I'm in a certain mood, I'm going to answer sans soleil. Because I also like to give mm-hmm. people answers as well. Like if I'm at a party, because I get it asked a lot when they find out like <laughs> I'm a big movie buff, right? And you know, I don't want to just be elusive because I want a conversation starter, you know? And so I will say sans soleil, which is a, a doc by Chris Marker. It's from the late 60s. It's kind of a seminal film in some film schools. I've never saw it in school. But it's just a doc with a heavy narration a heavy voiceover, um, and then kind of exploring the world. So it's very different than this, but it has enough similarities that I immediately um, made a correlation uh, between what I felt this film would be and that film. And it definitely hit a lot of the same notes. And it also had Miranda July doing the voiceover. And she's been a very formative personality and creative voice, especially in my movie-going uh, I guess, and movie critic career. I saw mm-hmm. a showing of her debut, her little film, Me, You, and Everyone We Know. And I saw that at the local theater when I was a college student uh, with a Q&A. She wasn't there, but it was just a Q&A, like an academic Q&A after. And that was one of the very first films to really tap into like alienation and loneliness in the digital age like she really did it before almost anyone did it it's a quirky film it's not for everyone but i immediately like was won over by her charm and she has like this vulnerability and sweetness to her and so i was just like i have to see this like i couldn't have been more transfixed once i got basically five minutes into this picture it's talking about fire of love now it's just it's just hypnotic so the narration is one of the things that I think can potentially be very divisive. And I actually did not, I don't think, come around to it right away. I felt like it grew on me over time. She speaks intentionally in this very hushed, almost whispery tone at times with, a, with this almost like a raspy, low voice. And it's I think it's intentionally trying to kind of draw on the poetic nature of the way this story is being told and it's probably and i i would love to ask director sarah bosa this but it feels almost like they don't want her to overshadow the story in any way and whereas the narration is extremely good it is it is perfectly on point for what we see take place and that's how the movie gets 
presented to us essentially is it's all this archival footage occasionally there are some interviews with the crofts but for the most part like you can't talk to them they're gone and it's just all of these old tapes and videos and such and so the language of the film is miranda july and it almost felt like they didn't want her to overshadow it in the way that you know like a morgan freeman narrating it's so powerful that you only think of morgan freeman narrating and and I would never go to this film and the first thing in my mind would not be, oh yeah, Miranda July's narration, but yet it's perfect for what we see. Is that kind of how you responded to it as well? I mean, this is really fascinating for me to hear actually, because uh, in a non-like uh, argumentative way, I think I have the exact polar opposite, which I think just comes Ooh. to, sh- goes to, yeah, it, well, it just goes to show that like familiarity with a, with an artist can really change your understanding of a text, right? Um, I don't think it it has anything outside of like the differences in our relationship to this film, right? In our narr- in the narration of this film, solely just relies on how familiar I am with Miranda July and who she is versus probably how familiar you are. I don't know. Have you seen any of Miranda July's works? Zero. Okay. Maybe so, one. I I looked her up and I was something looked a little familiar, but I don't think so. Okay. Yeah. So she is like very much a a persona as i've already said a few times and i think this like a uh, voiceover is so perfectly like embodies her like spirit she has this like this melancholy and this vulnerability and this sweetness but also this very like mesmeric quality um she like can very soothing voice right i heard a lot of re- i heard and i read a lot of references to asmr and i even I don't know much about that whole culture, but I kind of thought that while I was watching this, even though I am so familiar with her, like it's kind of like ASMR. It's just so meditative, right? But I am really interested in this like divisiveness that her narration, you know, fostered within the audience at large of who has seen it. Because I've read a lot of takes, right? And yours is different. Yours, I think, is just a, a unfamiliarity with her style and, and thinking that there was a more calculated decision. And I believe Sarah Dosa and her team, when they decided to get Marana July, they were making a choice, right? And okay. Marana July, uh, her sensibility, her tenderness, her very existential nature, um, her artistic nature, she's very playful. She's a multimedia artist. She's a fiction writer. She does these like weird mashup videos. She does all sorts of um, what almost would feel like prank art stuff. Like she has um, a book about like buying random stuff on eBay or some site like that and meeting the people and then writing write-ups on these people. Like she's just kind of quirky. She's like quirky incarnate, right? And I think that her tone aligns really well with the intentions of this film. But I think there are people out there who wanted something very different in general. I think they wanted a more scientific approach to the material. I think they wanted a more methodical, um, maybe uh, mature is not the right word, but maybe a more sober approach to the material. And I completely understand that. What's amazing is we've also, and I've not seen it yet, and I've heard it's on Prime, we also are fortunate enough to have Werner Herzog's take on this same footage. He basically... Is using the same footage, and he has a film out there called The Fire Within. Um, Guarantee it's different. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. I watched the trailer. It also looks really, really amazing. He has a small doc, Herzog, I'm talking about, about, um, uh, I don't know, the island. I don't even know the name because I believe it's in French. It's a 30-minute doc. It's on YouTube. And 
it's Herzog from the 60s or 70s rushing to this volcano that's active and about to explode and interviewing people on this tiny island, right? Um, so that, so I love that he's doing that because, of course, it fits, right? Volcanologists, I mean, Herzog loves kind of scientists who are, uh, you know, at the precipice, at the edge, you know, at the frontier, both in terms of risking their lives, but also in terms of pushing science forward, right? Um, and he also loves eccentrics, right? And Maurice and Katia are, are eccentrics. <laughs> to a T. And so I, I think that that would be a really intriguing viewing side by side. And I do plan to do that, right? To juxtapose the two together. But just to sort of summarize uh, my, my take on this divisiveness of the narration, I loved it, but I love Miranda July. And I don't think this movie needed to be the definitive movie. It is the first movie and it's going to, I think, get a lot of talk when it comes out on Disney+. Plus. Maybe I'm overhyping it because I love it so much. I mean, it could just be, you know, a drop in the pan or whatever. But I think it will make some ripples, at least in certain circles. And yet, I think the footage is so amazing that we might have in 10 years a 10-part series on some streaming service. And that's fine. So I just think this is what it is. And it has its tone. It has its agenda. It has its thesis. And it sticks to it. And so that's kind of my take on the narration. Well, I love that because I definitely wouldn't have had any idea that this is just her normal. I, I have seen Kajillionaire, so that's the one project that I've seen. She wrote and directed it, but I haven't. She wasn't in front of the camera, to my knowledge. So I haven't gotten to know her, but I, I love it. I mean, ultimately, by the end of it, I was like, this is perfect for me. And I really appreciated how well I love the ASMR comparison because that is how it feels. It's almost like. Uh, soft and you know meditative and like you could go to sleep to her voice in this and that is the whole documentary is going to be divisive in some ways because of the science that you're talking about because of the way that when you perhaps go into a documentary of this kind you immediately if you've seen anything prior probably think i'm watching a nature story so we're going to learn about the science of volcanoes and we're going to hear some statistics and some random measurements and all kinds of very specific things. When in reality, it's not the story that is being told here. This is a love story. This is about the life and the love and the romance of these two people who, as the film points out beautifully in its finale, just happened to be born in the same place, ended up at the same school or whatever, and it happened to have this completely random and unlikely similar love of the same thing that so few people do. It, it was fate, you know, for lack of a better term. Like, it's hard to, to find something else to describe it accurately. And this is the story of how it's almost like a three-way romance because it's the two of them in volcanoes, and they do practically love what they are doing for a job, and they love being around, being in and studying volcanoes as much as they love each other and as much as they live, love life to some extent. And that turns a lot of people off, I think. we, In my Facebook discussion group for Feel and Film, we saw someone with a take that was you know, coming from his own perspective, uh, very religious background and you know, thinking long-term and was kind of a little bit struggling with the fact that they, they threw caution to the wind, this couple. It doesn't mean they didn't try to be safe, but as the documentary teaches us or shows us, 
you know, they push the boundaries and they do it knowingly and they do it together. And so for me, I didn't mind the lack of science. I actually watched this with my 17 year old son who chose it and he thought it was incredible as well. And that was amazing. The, just to me, just seeing the volcanoes and the footage that they have, it's, it's absolutely unreal, Paul. It is insane to me that this exists, especially being filmed back then. And it looks like it looks now. It, I just, it, I can't even, my mind can't comprehend how it's possible, but it's phenomenal. And I, I almost appreciate it more because I don't need to know any specifics. You can tell me once or twice how hot it is. That's fine. But it's all there for me to experience myself through watching them go through these experiences. And I, I just felt like there was nothing more that I would have learned here that could be as powerful as the story I got about these two humans. Yeah. I mean, I, I love that you talked about the footage as well, because we have to talk about the footage. They had hours upon hours, right, of 16 millimeter immersive, visceral, firsthand footage of volcanoes doing things that I've never seen volcanoes do before. I don't spend much time with volcanoes. I have a very rudimentary understanding of volcanoes. And I didn't know, you know, how diverse they were, how beautiful they were, how stunning they are, how lava works in different ways. And I do understand that it, this isn't a science-heavy film. But at the same time, I don't see the real point of it being science-heavy. I think that if you're really going to be a volcanologist, you're going to have to spend hours upon hours upon months upon years in, you know, a library as well, reading about uh, a volcano and in and on the, and in the field right and furthermore i don't even think this is a weird statement in ways maurice and katia are traditional scientists first and foremost they almost feel like phenomenologists or artists to me so phenomenologist is someone who's just amazed and transfixed and wants to study phenomena which means occurrences in the world and they don't necessarily have an agenda and that sounds like um a kind of vague statement. But I think there's one line in this that really stuck out to me. And it was Maurice got really angry on a TV show about academics who are classifying volcanoes. And he's almost specifically going after scientists who are labeling volcanoes. And he says every volcano has its own unique personality. And he's like, we're trying to learn about each unique volcano, each personality. So in a way, I almost saw them as poets who over their lives, I think, turned a little bit more into scientists because of a few very significant events, one, they witnessed like a, ma a massacre is the wrong word, but they, they witnessed the Colombian government ignore scientific suggestions to evacuate their population and they saw mass death and that haunted them. And I think that really turned them into a more practical minded scientific um, approach to a degree in order to prevent further situations, right? To harden the science, which I love too. It's not that either of these are preferential. It's just interesting that this is a unique couple to me. I think when they started their career, they're more about the like love and the romance, the adventure of volcanoes and they would study them, right? But they would study them through that romance first, through the love of nature on a very visceral, almost artistic level, which 
is where you get their artistic sensibility, right? These, they're artists. You look at them, they look like everyone jokes that they look like they're from a Wes Anderson movie with their red beanies. <laughs> <I> <laughs> yeah. You have Maurice on the shows. He's, he's quoting Nietzsche, right? They're kind of like angsty intellectuals too, which I understand too why someone would be sort of opposed to his risk um, averse sort of almost firebrand personality. Um, he reminded me of a few of my friends in college uh, and myself for a very small phase when I was reading a lot of Nietzsche, where he felt a little headstrong in ways that were self-defeating, right? I actually, I should bring up this anecdote. I have to, because this is the craziest scene in the movie that not enough people are talking about is I've been to the shores of the lake. He takes a little inflatable rubber boat. The acid, the acid trip? Yes. No, yes. you have? Really? Yes, yes. It's one of the most amazing things I've done. I've traveled a lot in terms of traveling. So that's Mount Aijin. It's on Java in Indonesia. Um, so I hiked up it at 3 a.m. And it has this very famous blue flame. It's about almost 50 yards from this lake. And it's because of the sulfur gases. And you have to see it before dawn, right? Um, and so you climb down to this caldera at like 4 a.m. with a group because I'm a tourist. But... Um, you go with the headlamp and the locals, and you see this blue flame. It's 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 unreal. It's beautiful. But the sun comes up, and then you see this lurid neon green lake, right? And they very, you know, vehemently tell everyone, do not go within 10 yards of this lake. It's basically like, a, you know, think about like a, a toxic incineration lake. Like you drop something in that, and it'll literally start sizzling immediately and maurice goes out on this thing in yeah. a like disposable raft and mm -hmm. i and that scene is so frightening if he even drops like one of the raft um one of the you know the, the oars paddle. Yeah. yeah one of the oars they're in trouble if they splash too much they're they're at least have serious burn marks and yeah. if anything happens where that thing overturned they're done so it's one of the craziest things I've ever seen. So yes, he definitely threw caution to the wind. Um, you could tell even to Katia's uh, dismay or a little annoyance a few times, right? Um, so she definitely followed in his footsteps. And luckily or fortunately, I really feel like he isn't to be blamed or anything. They were definitely doing a very routine assignment, uh, you know, taking footage at the, at the base of Mount Unzen. In Japan, in the tragic 1991, I think, I, I, pyroclastic flow that came down and took their lives. And that was almost a, it's not a freak anomaly because it's always a high level of danger and peril they're in. But it was a sort of a natural danger level that they were both, I think, fully willing to take. But yeah, I thought that was a very intriguing element. And he does come off a bit almost, not immature, but he's, you know, he says himself, like, I'm paraphrasing. I think you might have written it down. Some people wrote it down. About I have like, it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. You say that's flick. Yeah. yeah. It's probably my favorite quote in the whole film is because he, it does speak to the kind of way that they approach life in general and comparatively to their level of risk taking. And he says, I prefer an intense and short life to monotonous and long one, a kamikaze existence in the beauty of volcanic things, which is, I mean, again, we were talking about how this is filmed as if it was poetry. Like, that's poetry, right? That's what he just said is poetry. And, you know, you compare that on the flip side to right when he's in that lake and they finally make the decision to come back because it's not going to, they're not going to get done what they want to get done. And he says, 
we're not completed yet. And I'm like, I literally like threw my hands in the air. Like, are you kidding me? Yes, you are. Like, what are you? But, but like, that's where his mindset is, right? It's just that it's a different thing than most humans have. It's one of the reasons I adore climbing documentaries. I'm not a climber. I don't go rock climbing and I certainly don't free solo, but I have this fascination with like Alex Honnold and, and other extreme athletes who ski down mountains for their life and their hobbies because they're all they almost there's a huge amount of them that die young or well before they normally would have any sort of natural causes right and it is always intriguing to me like what is different in a person's brain that makes that such a necessary thing like they need that to live in a way that I can never relate to you know like I need my kids or I I, I have my own things but like it's different um and and this is seeing two people do that, but be able to do that together. Usually you see it, we get told these stories and we learn about like individuals, not a couple that is jointly doing these things. And while simultaneously like creating all of this incredible footage and these stories and being able to show the world volcanoes in a way that we never ever would have without them. So they're doing something that is valuable historically speaking, scientifically speaking, but they're not even really doing it for that as much as they're doing it for themselves first. Yeah. And to go on that point too, right? Let's go back to the science real quick. And I'm, I'm very excited. You said you saw this with your son, right? And the people who are against this lacking science, I think this is probably more effective or as effective as any scientific hour and a half to two hour movie could possibly be. Because what's going to first and foremost drive science is love of nature, it's love of art, it's love of the earth, right? And I think that's what this invokes. It invokes a passion for like the beauty and the precarity of natural phenomena. And so I think it's as effective as anything could possibly be for what is a very niche community that obviously needs more people to be interested in, right? I mean, Maurice says multiple times, I mean, early on, he says they're the only volcanologists because they're the only ones actually going to the forefront, like the battleground of active volcanoes. By the end, right, we witness almost like 20 to 30 years of footage with the two. There's, uh, I think it's mentioned around 100 or so professional volcanologists in the world, right? Still extremely rare profession, but still a science that is uh, unknown, largely. Like, as much as they do know and as much as they've learned, like, they talked about endlessly how much they don't know, right? Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's so effective for that reason. And uh, it's really interesting, too, to think about the different approaches to science, right? Because Maurice was in it for like the adventure, right? Um, They talked about this. He had a sort of grandeur to him. He was into like the majesty, the sublime, the larger than life elements, right? He talks about wanting to create a titanium alloy boat and you brought, brought this up as well online, right? And canoeing down a lava flow into the ocean after being dropped into the lava flow by a helicopter. I mean, you gotta love that, right? Yeah. And then Katia is much different. And they show images, I think, that really complemented their descriptions of her. And she seems more interested in the microscopic, the intimate constellations of small details, right? So he's very macro. I think they likened him to a sea lion and they likened her to a bird, right? Um, she's more lightweight, but but still as substantial, right? She's still very vigorous about her 
about her curiosity and her pursuit of knowledge, right? And that's the other key. I think there's a quote in this that a lot of people have echoed, and it's probably one of the most important, if not the most important quote. And I'm just going to paraphrase it because I don't have it in front of me, but it's something about understanding is love, it's, or it's a language of love, and the will to understand is the will to love, right? And I read a few interviews with the director, Sarah Dosa, and she said she took that quote um, and a few other clippings and sort of created their thesis because they wanted to create this love story, right? Because it is sort of this magical, you know, story of two people who've met over volcanoes and spent their life pursuing volcanoes. But she said there was an utter absence of any images showing PDA. Like they had no on film affection really towards each other like you don't really see them touching or holding hands or kissing right you see them with like light romantic marital banter right you see the glow in their eye and the glimmer in the eye and you can tell that they're compatible but you don't see you know these displays of affection and so she realized that volcanoes were as she quotes their love language right and to further that understanding volcanoes is their love language so yeah it's a really intriguing film um but it's a really unique one because it is built on this it's called fire of love right it's built on this romantic narrative yet there's there's zero human to human um displays of romance i thought that was really really interesting yeah especially for a film that is a love story that like you're saying and yet that's what you feel because of how well they take these pieces of footage. And that's what makes something like this such a craft. The editing is impactful. I mean, I feel like documentaries a lot of times could take home all of the editing awards at major movie award shows. And they don't usually get nominated. Maybe it's an unfair advantage. But the way that this is edited is expertly. And, and it just you don't get the story without it. Right. Um, and it, and it, it is a more difficult job as well because there's not a narrative. You're creating a narrative completely off of your own. That's why this documentary has writers. And you, you guys probably won't remember this, but every time I cover a documentary, I almost, I don't think I've ever actually, I'll always say directed by, and I never talk about who it's written by because most documentaries aren't really written because they're just kind of experienced. But this one is written because it is created, and it's just very unique in that way. But yeah, it's it's so unique and so interesting, and I hope that people will go check it out in a theater. I mean, that's my recommendation. You know, it's still there, to my knowledge, uh, for now, hopefully for a little bit longer. Uh, and Yes, it's going to be on Disney Plus, and I'm excited for that, and I will promote the heck out of it, as I know you will as well, to try and get all of the people who won't go to a theater for a documentary to at least check it out. But even watching this on a 65-inch OLED TV that I have, that it looks incredible. But I can't imagine what you got to experience, you know, seeing this on a giant theater screen. It would have looked and just sounded tremendous. Yeah, it was phenomenal. And, I mean... We haven't talked about this either, right? And the other part to the craft here, to Miranda July's voice as well, is, and she has a strong tenor, right? She has this strong tone, and the music is so good. 
they picked all of the right songs, in my opinion. Um, everyone talks about the uh, Maricone drop, right? Because it's kind of a funny, like, you know, spaghetti it's western hilarious. famous. Yeah. yeah, it's very hilarious. It works well. But they do a lot of ambient songs that are just like, they surge, they crescendo, and they'll have these segues. And it's very narrative based, as Aaron just pointed out, right? And it's very well written and it's beautifully scripted, uh, playfully edited. Right. But they also have like three minute montages or two minute montages that are just these building crescendoing, um, you know, images of volcanoes. And those are equally transporting. And I, I like that you really focus on the, the the merit and the craftsmanship that went into the editing process. Um, literally before we got on this, I saw IndieWire posted something about like they were handed a gift in this movie. And I don't know if it was a backhanded compliment or it just came off as a backhanded compliment because they did inherit amazing footage, right? Um, from two artists. And that's a fun thing too, right? Because Maurice and Katya, as much as they claim that they're not artists, they were very much artists, even with the craft of their filmmaking, which the director I heard her explain that in that footage, they would see echoings of the French New Wave, which they were, you know, definitely had their, um, you know, their academic years, those formative years in that scene. So she was like, we would see the associative editing, the zoom edits, the shots, all these funny techniques that like Godard would do. They were like, they were in there. So, and we see that really interesting montage where Miranda July talks about, um, you know, that they staged scenes, right? That they, that they were interested in the framing of this. It's a very important part, right? I, I think that that doesn't diminish it in any way. It just shows that, like, for full effect, sometimes you have, you know, orchestration plays a part. And artifice, authenticity, there's authenticity in making art. So, like, in that binary, it doesn't necessarily designate that they are lacking in any way. It shows that they were this as well as this. They were scientists very much immersed in capturing the authentic moment, but they also wanted to make it look as great as possible for mass spectacle effect. So yeah, I absolutely love it. If you could see it in theaters, it, it's not an IMAX. It's, it should be an IMAX. It's that good. should be. Um, yeah. But the soundscape, uh, we'll, all great. We'll take what we got, right? <laughs> it, it, the fact yeah. that it's in theaters at all is a tremendous win. And, you know, we don't get many documentaries in theaters, but like I got to see Apollo 11 in theaters as well. That was another archival footage that was, just, you know, thankful Amazing. that I that that was there. So um, and Free Solo was another one. So, so it's happening more and more, which is really positive, in my opinion. Well, thank you, because there's no way I could have done this as much justice as a, with your help. So uh, where can people find you though? So I mentioned Cinematic Underdogs podcast. Uh, where all can people hear you, read you, etc.? Yeah, well, thanks again for having me on. I couldn't be more excited. I mean, I definitely know this is both our vibe from when you were on our podcasts and we talked about Free Solo, which is kind of the outlier of these. I mean, that's the one that really was a hit in theaters and got to stay in theaters. And I was hoping that for this one. I don't think it'll happen. But anyways, people can find me at Cinematic Underdogs on Spotify, iTunes. That's the same name I have. It's my Twitter handle. So Cinematic Under actually is it. Someone already had the dog part. But I'm also on Letterboxd. I write daily. And that is not confined to sports movies. Um, my Twitter feed isn't. I'm a movie lover first and foremost. 
sports movies is my podcast niche, but my interests in film go far beyond sports. And at the same time, if you want to check out our pod, we love movies that question the limits of our genre, the sports genre. And I think it's funny because Aaron first reached out to me asking, are you going to cover this? And I kind of chuckled and then I was like, no way, this isn't a sports movie. And then as you initiated that thought, the more and more I thought, well, it kind of is. Is it? No, it's not. <laughs> so I'm, I'm sticking behind that. No, it's not. But like something like The Rescue or Free Solo definitely could much more aptly fit into our category. But anyways, we like to explore the genres, limits and boundaries in a playful way. And we always have a fun time. There's a ton of episodes with Aaron on. There's some of our best episodes easily. So yeah, check us out. Awesome. Yeah, definitely second all of that for sure. Well, that's it for this week on FF Plus. Hopefully you have gotten some information that will help inform your movie decision making. If you do see any of the films that I or Paul and I both talked about, please find us on Twitter. Let us know. We love to chat movies all the time, anytime. I'll be back soon. Until then, keep watching and keep feeling film. me and there's a foreign language that you regret not learning in school, it's never too late to start with Babbel. Babbel is the language learning app that sold more than 10 million subscriptions. Thanks to Babbel's addictively fun and easy bite-sized language lessons, you can finally cross learning a new language off your list. I started using Babbel two months ago to learn Spanish. I chose Spanish because it's spoken in 21 countries and your girl loves to travel. With Babbel, you only need 10 minutes to complete a lesson, so you can start having a real-life conversation in a new language in as little as three weeks. There are so many ways to learn with Babbel. In addition to lessons, you can access podcasts, games, videos, stories, and even live classes. Plus, it comes with a 20-day money-back guarantee. Right now, get up to 55% off your subscription when you go to babbel.com slash rain. That's babbel.com slash rain for up to 55% off your subscription. Babbel, language for life.